Whitlam Institute exists to help in the great and continuing work of building a more equal, open, tolerant and independent Australia. I do not for a moment believe that we should set limits on what we can achieve together for our country, for our people, for our future. Welcome to the Whitlam Institute podcast. My name is Leanne Smith and I'm the director of the Whitlam Institute within Western Sydney University. Like all of you, I'm recording this podcast from the lands of our First Nations people. I happen to be on the land of the Darug people of the Darug Nation and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. The Whitlam Institute is a strong supporter of the Uluru Statement of the Heart. This podcast series is part of the Institute's policy research work around the topic of Australia in the world. This series, The Future of Australian Foreign Policy Towards Afghanistan, Afghan Perspectives, is a recording of seven podcasts, conversations with political, academic and community leaders from Afghanistan, located in Kabul, New York and different parts of Australia. We've made this podcast series for Australian policymakers, Afghan expats and the general community with an interest in what's happening at the moment in Afghanistan and what Australia's role should be to support Afghans and their government. In light of the recent military withdrawal of Australia, US and other international forces from Afghanistan, and as the Taliban continues to gain control of territory and attack communities across the country, we as the Whitlam Institute seek to raise awareness, in Australia and beyond, of the situation in Afghanistan today. Through these podcasts with eminent experts, officials and community leaders, we aim to ensure their voices are heard here in Australia as Australia explores what its foreign policy towards Afghanistan should look like post our military withdrawal. We're very grateful to these Afghan experts, both in Afghanistan and here in Australia, for participating in this production in the middle of a very difficult time for Afghanistan. There's an important conversation to be had here about Australia's moral responsibility to continue to support the Afghan government and people as they face this terrible new reality. What are Afghans across the country and particularly those vulnerable ethnic groups facing today. How are women's rights being affected? And what do Afghans seek from the international community to support them? How can Australia be part of that international support? These are some of the questions we seek to pursue over the seven series of this podcast, and we hope you'll enjoy what you have to hear, and please give us your feedback. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm delighted this afternoon to be speaking with Ahmed Shuja Jamal, who's the Head of International Affairs and Regional Cooperation at the Office of the National Security Council in Afghanistan. Ahmed, I understand that you have visited Australia before on a visit with Human Rights Watch, is that right? Yes, that's right. I've made a couple of visits with Human Rights Watch uh, to Australia, and one of the most memorable visits I made was actually uh, make some meetings and visits to Parliament in Canberra, but also to appear at the Sydney Human Rights Film Festival. Uh, which was one of, the, one of the highlights of my career. <laughs> I don't usually get to be with glamorous people in the film industry. <laughs> How fantastic. Well, I'm glad you had a, a good experience. And is there a chance that you might be visiting us again? There is. There is, actually. I am, um, I, I've got all the paperwork ready. Everything is uh, set up. Uh, the only thing that's uh, sort of between, standing between me and a visit to Australia, also for work this time to Canberra, is the availability of flights. So hopefully I'll see you uh, up close in the not so distant future. Inshallah.
Your position in the National Security Council makes you ideally positioned to share with Australians what's currently going on in Afghanistan and what are your concerns for the current situation? The biggest concern with what's going on, Leanne, is that the Taliban are pursuing a strategy of takeover by terrorism, which, is, which means that they're pushing um, violence as the only tool in the current situation to come out of um, the, the, the conflict in this country. What they should be doing is they should be de-escalating on the battlefield and escalating on the negotiating table. But what's happening is the exact opposite. There's been no meaningful engagement at the negotiating table for months, whereas the Taliban have been escalating on the battlefield, pushing the violence and the terrorism in the districts and provinces uh, that had not to this point seen uh, at high levels of violence. And so the result of that is that in the years past, the Taliban were able to create trouble in say 14 of the 34 provinces in the country. This year, it's nearly all of the 34 provinces of the country. And the result of that is unfortunately that civilian casualties is up by approximately 47%. These are UN figures and two thirds of that is women and children, which tells you how the Taliban are fighting, which is that they're using people's homes as places from which to launch attack, from in which to hide after they've launched attacks, um, and, and that's driving up the civilian casualties. And so the point for that is a big worry that I have right now is that the Taliban are risking losing an historic opportunity for peace. After the US-Taliban deal, they could have said, to the world, we have now succeeded in what we wanted to do, which was to have the international military presence move out of Afghanistan. And now our conflict is over. We are at peace with the Afghan people. We are ready to, to, to make peace. That could have given them a very high hand in any political settlement, but they've chosen to not follow that, but they've chosen to press for violence. And the upshot in, is that everybody around the country is now standing up uh, in cities, in provinces, uh, not just in arming up in support of Afghan national defense and security forces, but also shouting chants of Allahu Akbar, which was a rallying cry that galvanized Afghanistan's resistance against the Soviet occupation. So it's an act of reclamation of the national rallying cry uh, that has been so effective in the past, which is being used by the people across the country now to galvanize a resistance against the Taliban's aggression and attempts to take over by terrorists. And Shuja, does this resistance, where is it going to go? Are, are we on the edge of a, of a civil war? Is this civil war? It would be a civil war if the Taliban were actually a legitimate civilian, a legitimate political presence in the country representing a segment of, of the country. They are not. They are actually a, a narco-fed foreign proxy uh, that has... Uh, demonstrated time and again that, that, the, that the primary objective for them is conflict and that the politics is not driving anything in their decision making. Mm -hmm. uh, if politics had driven anything in the Taliban's decision making and in their uh, processes, they would have stopped the violence after the US-Taliban deal and they would have pursued a much stronger stream of political settlement in the negotiating table. But they're instead actually choosing retribution. In the spin district, which is in Kandahar, in the in the one week period in which they took control of that the district, they've actually taken approximately 400 men from the opposite 
tribe and they've, uh, in, in many cases, they've been summarily executed. And that kind of vengeance shows you that this is not a civil war. This is actually violence for violence's sake with no political objective in mind. This is not politically driven violence. This is violence driven by violence. Mm. And Shuja, for an Australian audience, when you say that the Taliban are a proxy, who are they a proxy for? So they are, uh, let me explain, let me explain what's going on uh, uh, by a story. When the so-called round one of negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban ended on the 25th of December of 2020, both negotiating teams, the government and the Taliban decided that they would take a break, go home and reconvene on the 5th of January of this year, of 2021. So the Afghan you know, delegation came to Kabul, they spent some time with their families, you know, they, they took care of their utility bills. They, and, and by the time it was time to go back, they did their COVID tests, they bought their plane tickets and they landed in Doha for round two of the negotiations. And guess what happened? There was no Taliban. Where were the Taliban? Nobody knew. Uh, the U.S. Special Representative to Afghanistan, to, for Afghanistan Reconciliation, Ambassador Khalilzad, left Kabul on the 11th of January to also speak with the Taliban. He also didn't know where the Taliban were. They were not to be seen anywhere in Doha. A few days afterwards, we, we saw that the Taliban were actually uh, in Islamabad. They were in Karachi with their leadership visiting their fighters in the hospitals in Karachi. These are Taliban videos put by the group themselves. That their other leadership from Doha that were negotiating peace apparently were also giving speeches and, and walking across a parade of potential suicide bombers. And so the group is able to use Pakistan as an arena in which they can treat their injured terrorists from which they can recruit additional terrorists and where they can raise money and to which they can actually put their families so that they can remain safe so that their men can pursue their, their career of terrorism. And so when you have a group like that, that group could not have operated in Pakistan without the consent and support of the Pakistani government. You simply do not allow a terrorist organization on your soil to run training camps and recruitment and, and fundraising unless you actually support the cause in some way or the other. And so when we talk about the Taliban being a proxy force, that's exactly what we mean, is that the Pakistanis are aiding and abetting and actively enabling the Taliban to carry out their acts of terrorism in Afghanistan. So this is not a civil war, this is a proxy war. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, in the context of the recent military withdrawal by the US, Australian forces and, and a range of others, I think we need to remind ourselves sometimes that that military intervention was designed to provide a security umbrella while Afghans and the newly elected Afghan government and international supporters embarked on the process of nation building, institution building, and so on and so forth that's been going on for 20 years at this point. Given the military withdrawal and the drawdown, what can and should the international community be doing now if they aren't going to have troops on the ground, if they aren't going to have air support? What does the international community need to do to support Afghans and the Afghan government, particularly in relation to what you just said about Pakistan's role? So the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, especially our special forces, are doing the brunt of the fighting. In fact, they're the only ones standing between the global terrorist network that is the Taliban. And I call them the global terrorist network because within them, they actually house ISIS, 
contrary to what they say about fighting ISIS. They house uh, terrorists from, Afghanistan has six neighbor, neighboring countries. The Taliban are working with and supporting and receiving support from terrorists from five of these six countries, Pakistan, China, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Turkmenistan. And so we effectively are on the front lines of a battle against a global conglomerate of Islamist jihadists. And so the support that we're receiving from NATO and partner nations to NATO, such as Australia, is going to be critical in whether we can stand up on the front lines and hold this threat for the rest of the world, or whether this threat can then metastasize and spill across our borders into other countries around the world, including Australia. So three things. We need support and training for our special forces. We need equipment for our special forces because in, in fighting you need ammunition, you need night vision goggles, you need air support. And our aerial assets and our fleets um, are uh, stretched to their capacity. So we need a refurbishment of our helicopters, um, but also train uh, new parts and spare parts for our helicopters. Uh, we need surveillance drones, for example, so we know where the Taliban are congregating, and they are congregating in large numbers. But more importantly, these are things that allow us to deal with the symptoms of the terrorism that the, the Taliban represent. What we really need is to engage with the region, in particular with Pakistan, so they can stop their support for the Taliban. Because if the Taliban are not able to receive medical treatment for their fighters when they're injured, if they're not able to recruit fresh fighters, and if they're not able to raise money in Pakistan, and if they're not able to put their families in Pakistan where they can be safe, then it becomes a lot easier for us to defeat them because then they are a threat internally in Afghanistan. Yeah. So Australia, I think, has an important voice in its bilateral relationship with Pakistan, but also through its relationships with NATO, the US and other countries to work with Pakistan, to help them realize that their strategy of aiding and abetting the Taliban uh, could create a conflagration that could engulf the entire region. We believe that the threats associated with the Taliban, which includes the terrorist groups from five of the six countries across around uh, Afghanistan, plus the narcotics smuggling from which the Taliban received a significant amount of cash is a threat not just to us, but it's a threat to Pakistan, to Central Asian countries, to China, but also to Russia. And so this shared sense of threat that we perceive all of us in this region from the Taliban or entities and activities such as narcotic smuggling associated with the Taliban can become a, um, a, a galvanizing common platform around which we can organize. And I think uh, that kind of, we call it the regional strategy. And that kind of regional strategy needs to be pursued and it needs to be pursued with the help and support of our partners. Uh, for us to get anywhere uh, in addressing this issue. Shuja, who would lead such a regional strategy and who are the most important bilateral actors or regional organisations to come in behind in terms of making that case with Pakistan? I think Australia obviously has an important voice with, with, with Pakistan. Um, the US has for about two decades now been engaging the, the Pakistani government uh, on this particular issue. And I think the US probably has the most important, single most important voice in that bilateral relationship. Uh, but every international voice helps because what it does is it helps Pakistanis realize that they can, they can uh, delay, they can, they can uh, mislead, they can 
show that they're acting when they're not acting with one country, say the, the Americans, but they can't do the same thing with the whole of the world. And so if Australia joins the United States and joins us and joins other regional countries, I think that would make it extremely clear to the Pakistanis that they can't delay, mislead uh, the entire world and that they have a role to play and that role has not been played uh, constructively thus far. Thank you so much for your time, Shuja. Is there, uh, is there any other message that you'd like to share with the Australian community or with the Australian government? I know you've got a trip coming up, but you know, do you want to forecast anything? So the, uh, the, the Australian government has been a, one of the main donors for Afghan National Defence and Security Forces, and they've been very effective, uh, particularly in some of the niche technologies such as counter IEDs. Um, and we think that that support now is going to remain critical. It's something that I'm going to be engaging with the Australian government about. Um, NATO is now running what they call over the horizon training for Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, which is training outside of Afghanistan. And we think Australia actually has an important role to play in contributing to that kind of training for our special forces and other forces. Australia also, I think, has an important role in equipping uh, these forces so that they can fight effectively against the Taliban and their associated terrorist organizations. And that also is something that is, is done currently through NATO. And I know that Australia and NATO, NATO has a, they have a, a special agreement that they've signed a couple of years ago, uh, which enables them to do this and other kind of partnerships. But beyond just security, I think our bilateral relationship is, has significant scope. I think Afghanistan, for example, is, is going through a severe drought. And this is a cycle of drought that we've been going through um, for, for a couple of decades now. Um, climate change adaptation, I think, is something that Australia has had significant experience with that could come in handy as we are battling COVID, terrorism, and a drought. Um, cricket is a major sport in this country, and, and there's no other powerhouse greater than Australia. And I think uh, that kind of diplomacy, that kind of play, uh, I, think, I think tournaments uh, would be significant. Our players have already proven their medal in the Australian Domestic League. People-to-people uh, -people contacts. I think it's uh, that there's a significant Afghan diaspora in Australia, and these are Australians who are attached to Afghanistan in a way that few other diaspora communities are to their, to their countries of origin. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a kind of leverage, that kind of connection that is deep and personal for these, for a large segment of Australian community uh, that gives Australia an important uh, organic connection to Afghanistan, in addition to the approximately 39,000 servicemen and women uh, in the armed forces, but also in the development and, and, and diplomacy sector that have worked in this country. Thank you so much, Ahmed, for sharing your time and your perspective. That was Ahmed Shuja Jamal, the Director of International Affairs and Regional Cooperation in the Afghan Office of National Security Council. Ahmad was sharing with us his thoughts on Pakistan's role in the proxy war going on in Afghanistan and what Australia can do to support Afghanistan at this terrible time. In the next episode of our podcast on Australian foreign policy toward Afghanistan post-military withdrawal, we'll be speaking with Shahrazad Akbar. She is the chairperson of the Afghan Independent Human Rights Commission. And Shahrazad will be speaking with us about some of the human rights violations that are going on right at this very moment, including targeted attacks and threats to women and girls. I hope you can join us for the next episode of the podcast. Thank you for your time.